Every day, traders and investors dive in to tackle the ever-changing markets to find opportunity. Futures Radio Show is your number one source for answers to the questions that all market participants want to ask. Veteran futures trader Anthony Crudelli sits down with the most influential leaders and top traders in the industry. Now, here's your host, Anthony Crudelli. What's up, everybody? Anthony Crudelli here, and thank you for tuning in to this month's Best Moments episode. Futures Radio Show is sponsored by CME Group. They are the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. CME Group's markets help individuals and businesses around the world effectively manage risk. For access to free educational tools and resources for the active individual trader, please visit activetrader.cmegroup.com. Remember, new shows are posted on Mondays and Thursdays. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes. This show is also sponsored by Trading Technologies, FTSE Russell, and RJO Futures. It was another busy month on the podcast, so I took all of my favorite clips from each episode and put them into one episode for you to enjoy. So without further ado, let me take you to our best moments from last month. I know that you guys recently announced the launch of micro options, and I think it's just for the S&P and the NASDAQ. So talk to us about how that's evolved. Yeah, that's right. Just last week, we announced that this fall of 2020, we're going to be introducing options on the E-mini, uh, the options on the micro E-mini S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100 futures, uh, which is kind of, you know, as you said, is the next natural evolution uh, in this E-mini equity index story. Uh, the NASDAQ and S&P are kind of the clear uh, volume leaders of the four. And as we talked about before on this show and elsewhere in the marketplace, to introduce options, you really need a robust underlying futures market first. You know, we've had the market a little over a year now, so we think it makes great sense to introduce options that are also right-sized to increase the precision by which market participants can manage your risk, hedge their positions, or access the market using options. We're very excited about that. And I think this is something where just another example of what we can do when we're trying to innovate and trying to round out the offering and equity indices. Um, I'm super excited to see how the options will do. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't necessarily say it'll be the same uh, success as the futures, which was the, the most successful product launch in CME group history. Uh, but certainly going to be a lot of fun uh, as we bring these, these option products to market over the summer as we head into the fall. Now, I'm not an options trader, but I'm curious about some of the details of the micro options. I know that there's monthly expirations and weekly expirations and the regular e-mini products. And that's about really all I know about the options market. But <laughs> uh, I'm curious as to, is it going to be really exactly the same like the, the bigger products? Or is it going to be a little bit different? So in terms of the way the product will work, the options will be on one of the micro futures contracts. So that will be the same relationship that the micro e-mini futures represent as well, where the options will be one-tenth the size of the classic or iconic e-mini S&P options or e-mini NASDAQ 100 options at CME. Where it's going to be a little bit different is, the let's call it the product offering, the market structure around options. Uh, as, as people are familiar with options, there are several maturities offered, as you alluded to, as well as uh, a bunch of strike arrays and strike listing. 
So what will be a little bit different with the micro options is that offering will be a little bit trimmed down. Uh, you know, we're only going to be offering 10 maturities in the listing cycle at once, which will include five Friday options, three end of months, and two quarterlies. There won't be any Mondays or Wednesdays. And of those five Fridays, uh, two of them will be the third Friday serial or monthly options, and then kind of rotating three weeks of Fridays on the week one, two, and four schedule. And what that does, that was in response to customer feedback, uh, both from our retail broker partners, as well as end users, as well as market makers. And they want to focus the liquidity provision where we think it makes most sense to introduce the product. And that's focusing on the Fridays, quarterlies, and end of month. Uh, so that would be the first uh, product listing for the e-mini NASDAQ 100 futures. And, sorry, the micro e-mini NASDAQ 100 futures, uh, options futures, and S&P 500 options on futures. Uh, so a little bit trimmed down, but otherwise, for all intents and purposes, just one-tenth the size, with just slightly less maturities uh, when, we, when we launch this product in the fall. It's great to speak with you today. A lot of questions for you. A lot going on, Mike, you know, from the Fed and what's happening in the markets. I want to start off with the Fed today. The Fed has fired their bazookas. <laughs> We're seeing the equity markets and, and what they're doing, puzzling a lot, a lot of people, uh, even technicians at this point. Uh, let's just start off with, I mean, you write a ton about what the Fed has done. Just give us your insight as to what the Fed has done thus far and your thoughts on it. I mean, the Fed has just put out, you know, like you said, a bazooka. I would maybe even say a nuclear bomb full of monetary stimulus, and they've done it in so many different sectors. They expanded on what they did in 2008, and they're doing many new things this time. Uh, just from an, uh, from an asset perspective, they've added about $3 trillion to their balance sheet. So just to put perspective on that, that is just slightly less than they did during QE1, 2, and 3. And they've done it all within about two months, three months. So, so the, the, the amount they've done and the pace that they put it on at is truly unprecedented. And, you know, what's interesting about this time is that they have moved into different markets. They, you know, they started with US, buying U.S. treasuries and mortgage-backed securities like they did in 2008. But this time they have gone into, you know, they're helping munis out, municipalities out, and they've gone even into junk bonds, investment grade bonds and junk bonds. They are doing everything they can to make sure the markets are fully liquid and dare I say going up every day because the, the effect that they're having, and I'm not saying it's a direct effect, I'm not saying that they're buying stocks but they are buying junk bonds, which have a very high correlation to stocks and are frequently hedged with the S&P uh, because their correlation tends to run very high. And, you know, I, I think people may cheer this. It's good for the markets. You know, let, let's cheer it because we need stable markets, because with stable markets, companies can get funded and the economy can get back to normal. That's one way to look at it. But another way to look at it is the Fed is grossly distorting the signals that markets tend to that markets send. Like the benefit of a market of interest rate markets is that, you know, interest rate tells you where the supply and demand for money is. It's an incredibly important signal. And as someone that's running a business or an investor or 
just about anyone that's somewhat involved in commerce or finance, that's very important to understand. And the Fed has gone into the interest rate market and they have made any kind of signal irrelevant. Amazon, for instance, just borrowed money yesterday for three years at 0.40%, 0.40 basis points. So basically borrowing money for free. I'm not saying Amazon is a credit risk, but that's that seems there's no why would you lend them money? You're picking up almost next to nothing. And there is risk that something does happen to Amazon. Not a lot, but so so the signals are being distorted. And I think that's really doing a huge disfavor to not only investors, but to the economy. Yeah, I mean, if we've learned anything there's always risk. <laughs> I don't care if it's Amazon or anybody, there's always risk. And point four just seems you know, ridiculous. I didn't know that. Um, but something that I want to I talk a little bit more about is you mentioned junk bonds and the correlation with equities. What symbol are you looking at? Because uh, I know that a lot of the S&P guys out there like myself, uh, junk bonds are not my specialty. So what are you looking at uh, on the chart to, to see that correlation? You can just run a simple correlation between one of the popular ETFs, JNK, or uh, I believe it's HYG, to you know pick SPY or whatever your favorite equity index is. Uh, you can also look at returns. The better way to do it is you pull up returns. I use Barclays data and look at returns on junk bonds versus returns on S&P. And over time, you'll find that the correlation tends to be very high. And, um, you know, and for that reason, junk bonds actually have a higher higher correlation with stocks than they do investment grade or, you know, bonds that are triple B or better, more solid bonds, corporate bonds, and certainly more correlation than U.S. Treasuries. So you can say that, you know, people are selling, investors are selling, brokers, banks are selling, junk bonds to the fed and when that happens they're most likely some of those trades are being hedged with equities by the banks and brokers so indirectly i think it is having an effect on stocks and at the end of the day i think this is also just a pavlov's dog thing let's buy whatever the fed's buying right the fed's involved stocks go up they're buying junk bonds. Let's buy junk bonds. We don't care that they're only yielding. I, I look at bonds. I get sent bonds every day. And I'm looking at these bonds of companies at 4 or 5% that are, you know, and we're in a recession. We're, we're not in an economic period, a good economic period. And there's a lot of unknowns. And, the, the you know, like Amazon at 0.40% is low, but but some of these companies that are really not good companies and don't have a strong chance of survival, you're only getting paid four or five or six percent to own them. That's equally disturbing. So, you know, again, so everything is distorted. And when the Fed buys, they're pulling securities out of the market. Like like everyone says, well, what the Fed's doing has no effect on stocks. Not everyone. Some people say that. That's garbage because the Fed has bought three trillion of securities. That means they have changed the supply and demand picture of the investment universe by three trillion. They have taken three trillion of supply out of the market and supply and demand tells you that when there's less supply and demand stays constant, well, then prices go up. 
And it's not just the Fed, you know, it's every other central bank, too, is doing similar actions. Let's just jump into it. What are your initial thoughts on what happened with the Fed, what they did today? Well, I think it was kind of obvious that, you know, they're going to have to continue on with QE. And um, I was very glad to see in their dot plot that they're going to keep rates low or at least near zero through 2022, um, which is actually the first time I've seen them be honest with the market. Normally, those dot plots are very optimistic on rates moving higher as time moves uh, forward. But this time they were, you know, they were wanted to convey the signal that rates are going to stay low and that they're going to be as as accommodative as possible. And, you know, so this is the first time I've actually seen them do it in all my years of trading, to be actually honest with the market. And whether it's through 2022 or even what I think it's going to be longer, but who knows, it's going to even happen past then, uh, considering our country's in uproar right now. So who knows, but I'm glad to see that. And it makes sense because, you know, they, they, they have to, with the COVID that went through and now the riots and the uncertainty, they have to keep rates low. But, you know, a lot of people will disagree with that. And, you know, but it is what it is. So you can't fight it. It's even more bullish than I thought it, that it would be <laughs> just because of the things that you were talking about. They're a cautious tone on the economic outlook. Uh, you know, they acknowledge financial conditions have improved. And and when I saw the 2022, I thought similar to you that, you know what, they're like, it's just it's just full speed ahead. Right, right. And how much more can they do? I mean, they've obviously doubled their balance sheet in the last 10 months. And, you know, we've we've never seen a shutdown in a global, not just the U.S. economy, but a global economy. So that was the right response. And, you know, obviously people don't agree. You get a lot of naysayers saying, well, how can we have 30 million unemployment? The Nasdaq's making new highs. And and I've always said the only thing that really matters is the monetary base and whether or not QE is on or if it's off. That's all that matters to asset prices. I'll throw the other stuff out the window. All the traditional macroeconomics, forget it. It doesn't matter. It's if they're printing money, assets will rise because the money will all flow there. You know, for, for my friends out there that are that are not traders and they don't understand this, they always ask me to explain that to them. They're like, well, I, <laughs> I don't understand that, Anthony. I mean, look at everything around us that's happening you say it, the reason we're going up is because of the Fed. But you and I as traders and been following this stuff for many years, we understand it. But can you just yeah. explain to everybody why that is the case? I think even some traders out there will probably learn something from this. Well, if you look at you know the how our our system works, our monetary system, you know, the Federal Reserve is a is a private organization in charge of, you know, our monetary supply of dollars. They're not U.S. Treasury dollars. They're Federal Reserve notes. And the U.S. Treasury borrows money and the Federal Reserve issues the money. So if they're expanding that monetary supply, it, you know, people will look at that. You'll get the, a lot of inflation guys like, oh, that's inflationary. It's inflationary. Yeah, it is. But it's also debt. And the debt has to be paid with interest. And that's what's really, really the deflationary factor is, yeah, you can print money and money is inflationary. But with the debt rising, that's going to cause problems because you always got to pay that debt back. So there's going to be that always that push and pull. But for, you know, just to understand it in terms of asset pricing, if the, if money is going up and money's rising, then you have a, a high powered uh, catalyst behind you chasing pricing because obviously it's like a supply demand thing. Even if the demand's low, the, if the supply of money is there, it's going to find, you, you, you know, everyone's got their different risk tolerances, but it's generally going to go and try to make more money from the money, right? Let's just put it in the general terms. In order to, you need capital to, to make more capital. It's always been that, that way. And when you've got high-powered money like QE, 
you know, you're buying every asset out there from, you know, the Federal Reserve is, is printing money. And I was glad to see Jerome Powell actually admit it on uh, 60 Minutes. Yeah, we just, we just, you know, we just digitally create it. It's great. <laughs> yeah. So the honesty from the Fed lately is, is awesome. Like the transparency, they're just basically telling you like, look, we are going to do this. And if you don't like it, we don't care. It, it, the people that want it need it, and they're going to asset price are going to rise. Money's going to go towards you know buying Nasdaq. And if you look at you know they're only buying five of the stocks out of that whole thing. It's been obvious. Um, but yeah, so from the simplest terms, it's, it's if they're printing money, it's going into risk assets, and it doesn't matter if there's millions of unemployed because. Yeah, I mean, it does matter on a civil society level, I, I do believe, and I'm not a big fan of that, of the destruction of civil society. But in terms of asset prices, the Nasdaq could care less of where the real general economy goes as long as money is being printed. Now, that could all change, Anthony. I mean, that could, you know, we could really get some geopolitical events that happen and that then risk is going to be completely taken off. But for right now, it's like they're printing money and it's going right into risk asset. Okay, traders, we're going to pause for 30 seconds and we'll be right back. The Russell 2000 is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 futures symbol RTY and the micro E-mini Russell 2000 futures symbol M2K. To learn more about FTSE Russell and their products, please visit FTSERussell.com. A question I constantly get is what platform do I use to trade futures? Well, I use TT. They are the world's fastest commercially available futures trading platform. You could try it today for free at tryttnow.com. So, so back in May at around 10 p.m., you write this tweet out, and it was late at night, but you said once you felt the pain of the market taking from you, then you can shift your mindset to becoming a taker from the market, not a giver. My mindset is I want to take from the market, not give. This mindset gives me the confidence to press when I'm winning and give less when I'm losing. So I know the purpose of this show is to talk on edge. And mindset is 100% one of my favorite topics to talk about. I believe a lot of traders can, can learn from mindset. But many traders learn to lose well, but they lack an edge in learning to win well. So what steps would you give a beginner, intermediate trader, any traders for that matter, what would you give them to, to learn to become a taker from the market and not a giver? So traders, this is one of the most critical moments in my career, this exact question. And it's because I think that losing is contagious and winning is contagious. And one of the things that I think so many new struggling traders struggle with is going from having a winning mindset from a losing mindset. It's very difficult. I struggled with this for years because when you're losing, a lot of times I just self-imploded and I would just give to the market. Sure. And I would, and going back to some emotions, but you just have this emotional just feeling just of you're beat up <laughs> and you just go, go ahead, here you go. And you give it to the market. I remember so many times I was near the bottom of my account and I was just doing everything I could to, to fight it and keep it into a certain area. And then all of a sudden, one or two or three bad days, and then the fourth day, and whatever day it was, I would just give in and just let it go and almost force myself to want to write a check again. And that mentality was just a losing mentality. I was having moments of weakness while the market's in a position of strength, and the market was taking from me. And I said, you know what? At some point, I said, I'm done. I'm not giving anymore. 
I'm going to start taking. And in those moments when I felt that I had a weak hand, whether it was mentally, physically, <laughs> emotionally, you know, I would step back and I'd say, I'm not giving you any more. And I almost took that in a lot of ways personally because oh I God. felt that a lot of the money I gave to the market was when I was in weak moments. And I said to myself, Anthony, don't go to the market with a weak hand, go to the market with a strong hand. So that to me is the difference. Man, I like that. I hope traders are out there writing this down because there's a lot of wisdom in that. Going in the market with a with a strong hand. And to me, that's mental capital right there. Like, you know, you've been out, hey, drinking, partying, whatever, and you're waking up in the morning hungover and you want to go trade. I mean, to me, that's just a recipe. Been there, just giving it back, right? Same thing. If yeah. you haven't prepped, same thing. It's, yeah, that's a really good, good points. And then shifting back to the taking aspect of it, when I'm doing well, take as much as I can. And that, that's just a mindset I've had over the years. And that took a long time to develop, but I know that when things are going well, and we talked about this in the previous segment and everything's working for me, I'm going to take as much as I can because I personally believe, at least in, in my 20 plus years, that you make money in moments. So moments that everything's working for me, strategy-wise, mentally, physically, emotionally, everything's going good. I try to take as much as I can because I know that there's going to be times where things aren't working for me. So I've learned to take when I have the ability to take from the market, when the market is actually giving me what I want. So that's a major mindset shift that I had to have over the years. And to also be patient during both periods. When you're doing really well, stay patient with it and stay and trade all the time. When you're not, step back and be patient to know eventually it's going to come again. What are your thoughts on what you're seeing right now uh, with it being an election year, anything in particular that we should be watching for as traders that could have an impact on us? And, and if you could also just, just touch a little bit on the financial transaction tax. Sure. Well, I think that's a really relevant question you're raising right now. Look, we're less than six months away from the November elections. We're at a point where, um, you know, the coronavirus has, has just kind of battered the markets in some level, created so much volatility. The markets have gone down and up and down and then up. You know, the, the federal government has spent a ton of resources on stimulus to try to stabilize the markets. Um, and so the government has been on this big spending street, spending spree. And at the end of the day, they're going to have to figure out a way to pay for all that. Um, and so I do see as the elections approach um, that the financial transaction tax proposal is something, you know, I expect to continue to be seeing discussed, especially in the in light of the need for revenue. Um, I think what I'm really flagging to investors, if you're trading, you know, futures or, or derivatives or, you know, other types of asset classes, that most of these proposals do touch on, you know, those types of financial products. And so it, it really does impact all traders. And I think, you know, there's been this misperception um, promoted by some some, I'd say, more populist Democrats that the financial transaction tax would, you know, quote unquote, punish Wall Street. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, and you can look at our website at modernmarkets.org, we have the studies available. At the end of the day, um, this has a devastating impact on savers in 401k plans, IRAs, you know, 529 plans, you know, pension fund plan recipients. It, it Vanguard did a really interesting study that even a 10 basis point tax across all asset classes, that's derivatives, bonds, you know, equities, that that 10 basis point 
tax could would likely delay retirement by two years for just an ordinary investor. So that's a lot of extra time to have to work to pay for this tax, right? So, and we have had studies also conducted that show if you have like $100,000 in a regular investment account where you're expecting, I think our assumption was like 6% a year return that over 40 years, even this tiny 50 basis point tax would add up anywhere from 40 to $60,000 over a lifetime of savings. So it's it's real money. And if you're an investor, I think it's worth you know, educating yourself on the issue because, um, you know, despite this tax having been abolished by a Democrat president and a Democrat Congress, I think it's been over 50 years ago that it was abolished. You know, it's something that's coming into renewed focus because it's just a fact that people are looking for revenue. Now on social media, I always talk about statistical edge and mental edge. I really believe that traders need to develop both. I think that too many traders spend too much time working only on their statistical edge and not enough time working on their mental edge. And I've gotten into some conversations with traders that have asked me, is mental edge really even a thing? What do you think, Denise? It's definitely a thing. Um, I'm going to step back for a second and like provide some context. So there's really kind of two schools of trading psychology. One is the one that I learned in the 90s, the discipline base, plan the trade, trade the plan, take every trade in your plan, otherwise the statistics won't work out. Everyone tries to do that. Basically, no one can do it. Um, and the reason is, and by the way, if you try to do it and you can't do it, don't feel bad because it's not you, it's the way the human brain is built, which leads to the second school of trading psychology, which is really, um, anchored in the idea that your confidence or conviction is the key. So this school is really only 15 or so years old, came from being able to watch the brain make a decision. Um, It takes psychological capital into account. Why? Because there are really two tracks to every decision. There's whatever your analysis is, whatever you know, whatever you've learned how to do, whatever that system is, whatever that plan for the trade is. But you don't make a decision on that. You never push the button on that. You push the button on how confident you are in that or how afraid you are that you're going to miss something. What the research shows is what causes you to do something is the feeling. So that's like so counterintuitive to what we've all been taught. But the truth is, it's like this huge opportunity to create an edge because you're working with your brain actually the way your brain works. Like you don't know it, but you're always predicting how something is going to make you feel. So you're looking at a trade, you're predicting it's going to work out or not work out. You're predicting whether you're going to feel good or bad about that. And it's like that dimension that causes you to make the decision. So that's an opportunity for mental edge. Uh, You can work with it in all sorts of ways. Um, A scientist would call it your subjective probability, which definitely plays into whether you make the decision or not. So, I mean, in my mind and in my work, there is absolutely no doubt that working with your brain, the way it responds to a trade is an opportunity for an edge. Let's put it that way. It's an opportunity for an edge. What are your thoughts now that you're so bearish the dollar? Is that impacting your decision-making on gold? Is it separate? That's, see, that's why you're, you're great at this. 
it's because we've talked about it and it's always been gold currencies, right? Yep. We talked gold euro, gold Swiss, gold yen, gold yuan. We've talked about that over the years. And that's why if this becomes a dollar uh, down, a, a dollar downplay, I'm hoping that the gold kind of just sits there at these highs, doesn't really do anything, and the gold currencies unwind a little bit as people move uh, back into some currencies and out of gold where they have hung their head. But I, I think, you know, you know me, Anthony, I've been very consistent for 10 years, more longer, 20 years, but you were talking about it. And um, in that gold is a hedge against central bank losing credibility. What I believe. Now, does that ultimately become inflationary? Probably, but my statement is not that gold is a hedge against inflation. That's that's the popular narrative, but that's not what I accept. In a fiat currency world, gold is the ultimate currency, and as a store of value, and that's what it's done. As the banks have gone wild, as, as the banks are on uh, spring vacation down in. Uh, uh, where do they go? In Lauderdale, gold has been acting as the adult in the room, and it's been a preservation of, of value. That's all. And in a zero interest rate world in which we reside, it doesn't really cost you anything to own gold, and it does act as a balancer against central bank uh, losing their credibility. Now, when I say that, people say, oh, the central banks have great credibility. Yeah, if I watch, you know, the, the popular television shows, they, you know, they all come out. Because if I'm a Wall Street person, I love the Fed. The Fed's done a great job. I'm a hard money person and believe that debt is a serious issue and the finances of debt is a serious issue and my life doesn't revolve around the last tick in the S&P value. The central banks haven't done a very good job, and I'm very fearful that we're now existing in the world because they they don't have an exit, and that's the real scary thing. Central banks do not have an exit, and I can say that with certainty because I can go back to May 2013 with the famous taper tantrum, and I wrote a blog in real time on that day that Bernanke made a huge mistake when he walked back out of fear of the taper tantrum because he should have let the markets work and the Fed would have been able to at least have some type of exit strategy out of the massive QE program. But as soon as he cowered in the face of the fall off in bonds and stocks, the street knew, knew that they owned him. Yellen tried to escape from it, but she caved also. And we saw Powell, and you and I talked in real time. That was going to happen. In fact, uh, I went back and viewed a Santelli I did in July of 2018, absolutely talking about because we were looking at the yield curves, which had inverted. And Rick and I, July 10th, I was just looking at it because now I have some time because I'm on a little hiatus here to go through some stuff. And that was really important. And then comes the fourth quarter of 2018 where bonds get wet uh, and the stocks drop 22, 23%. Why? Because the Fed is tightened. And they've also shrunk the balance sheet, which then Stanley Druckenmiller in December comes out in an interview and says that double shotgun approach was a gigantic mistake. And then we get the Powell pivot in January 2019. And as you and I talked about many, many times, the story of 
of the equity markets and other things in 2019 was taking back the entire fourth quarter break, right? Yep. So then we finally, but that was all due to the Fed caving and not staying the course one way or another. But I, but I believe with Santelli, when Enrique and I hit, it's there for everybody to see it, July 10th, 2018, that it was a mistake to do both, as Druckenmiller said in December, do one or the other. If you're going to raise rates, don't shrink the balance sheet. And my preference would have been, as a longtime Fed observer and global macro trader, that he should have begun shrinking the balance sheet. That would have been a much better route. And then they, they just came. So we get the Powell pivot in January 2019. I credit you with teaching me really about gold and how you said it really is. It's about the central banks losing credibility because for years you hear that gold is a hedge, right? In, in yeah. many senses, yeah. right? They always say it's a hedge against all these, all these things, right? And I always right. look and I always have somebody who goes, okay, if that's the case, let me look at something to prove it. I look at the chart and I go, I remember in 08 and 09, oh, you got to be buying gold. Well, the gold didn't rally until the S&P rallied back, right? And you look at this right. year, it made the low when the S&P made the low and then gold rallied with it. And I look at it and go, how could be uh, buying gold on the way when equities are getting ripped lower be a hedge? <laughs> it's They never bounce until the equities bounce. I mean, that's just what I see. Yeah. Well, people are liquid, you know, people are selling assets in that world. You know, as, exactly. as Dennis Gartman you know, always talks about that when the, you know, when the margin calls come, he says when the panel player, when the, when the whorehouse gets raided, meaning massive margin calls, even the panel player gets arrested. And it's really a, a great. It is a great line. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it is, it is, but, but that's what I'm saying. So it's not really a hedge, <laughs> you know, I mean. No, it's not. It's not. See, it's a false because then they both right now they've been both been going up together, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, that's why I look at it. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm looking at it. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying that I know the, the entire details between how if you're owning an equity portfolio and how much gold is is helped by by owning some of it and down moves. I I just look at the chart and go, if I'm long the S and P buying gold uh, when the S and P is going down in hard times when we have bear markets. <laughs> that's not a hedge. I'm losing more. You know what? But, and, you know, the, the argument, I know you've had some of the people on. You know, a lot of people out there who think deflation. Well, if that's the case, gold ought not to be going up. So they say, well, they're buying it out of the fear of inflation. Well, that's kind of a stupid bet, isn't it? If you think that deflation, so they're buying bonds and they're buying gold. So think about that. Yeah. You know, equities, are, okay, I, equities are almost acting like gold because in zero interest rates, you know, and, and here, let's do the math, okay? Uh, let's, let's everybody think about this. Let's say you had a retirement account of $10 million, right? This is just hypothetically speaking. And you're my age, 67 years old, and you go, well, you know, I don't want all this risk in the stock market, so maybe I'll take a, a million or two and put it in the stock market with some dividend-paying stocks, and the rest I'm putting, where am I putting it? I'm buying a 10-year treasury, not on your life, because a 10-year treasury yields 65 basis points, and by the Fed's measure, inflation is 1.3. So every year is, I'm losing, if everything stayed the same as the kind of service pairs, all things stay equal, but of course they don't. I'm a trader, everything's dynamic. But I'm, I'm making an investment where I am losing in real terms 
65 base points a year. So after 10 years, I'll have lost in real terms, you know, eight, nine percent of my money on a compounded basis, maybe a little more. So that's not an investment for me. So I stay short term, but how do I protect the value? So if I have, let's say, $9 million to invest, and let's say I bought a one-year T-bill to 20 basis points, do the math. You know how much I'm getting in interest for the year? $18,000 on $9 million. <laughs> okay? That's real. That's a real discussion. Yes. Who's doing that? I, I... So now you've got to go. They, they force your hand to go search for other things. So now you better put it in. So if you're about protecting your wealth, you know, because, you know, you're my age, you're thinking about, well, how am I going to live out my last, you know, God willing, 20, 25 years would be great. And at $18,000 a year, all I'm doing, and my, and my non-U.S. friends laugh because they don't think in these terms, I'm eating into principle. The worst feeling to me is when I'm eating into principle and I'm spending money that I have, that is my savings. You know, I, I want to I I leave some to my children, my grandchildren, but if I'm having to live, I, you know, and not change my life, yes, I can demand. Can I live on $18,000 a year? I'm sorry. I, I hate to, to say it, but I, I can't. I can't. You know, I, uh, but I've learned, especially during COVID, I'm probably spending... 25 cents of every dollar that I was spending. I don't go out to eat. We do. We cook at home. We're not going out to movies. I'm not paying outrageous amounts of money to go to baseball games, uh, golf tournaments, uh, uh, you know, whatever, plays. Uh, last year, I was going to see Clapton and all kinds of great guys. I'm not doing that. Yeah, I'm not doing that. It's amazing but, how much we've learned about ourselves during this time. Yes, yeah, I, I agree with you. But but on the other hand, so I can't quite make it on eighteen thousand. But I've learned I can make it on a hell of a lot less if I if I need to. But I haven't worked, and I'm still working. I'm on with you, and you know that I, this is a twelve to fourteen hour day for me to be able to sit here and talk to you like this, and and do my trading, do my work, and you know go to other places, and. Um, and get involved in the in real conversations, and you know, try to promote myself a little bit. Uh, so, these are real things. So, think about that: nine million dollars in investable funds, eighteen thousand in earnings. If I buy a one-year treasure, the safest instrument to park myself. Now, you can say, "Well, why aren't you buying bank stocks?" Well, I tell you what: go put up the damn charts of bank stocks. So, you're assuming that I'm going to buy them now, all right? I'm not. I'm 67 years old. I'm not averaging. I'm not an average dollar. Although I am dollar averaging, I will tell you in the stock areas that I like, which is if see, I'm not. I, I understand that people think there could be deflation, and I'm not a, a rapid inflationist either. I have to see more. But I'm buying uh, mining stocks and agricultural stocks because they're the most unloved segment of the market. I'm only buying high-quality companies with low debt-to-equity ratios and have a consistent dividend payout. Even if it's 2 2.5%, 3%, it's far better than what I can get elsewhere. And I, and I believe the Fed is going to be successful in doing what they want to do, which is create inflation. 
So if I think that, that's what I'm building my portfolio for. You say, well, why aren't you buying energy? Energy, I just don't know. I'm actually moving into some more green stocks. I, I mean, I've had one play that has just been great, Ballard Power of late. Uh, and, you know, it's one of my green. I have some other ones that I like. So I, I'm actually moved there, even though they're not, they don't meet my criterion. Uh, they're ridiculous PE numbers, which I'm not generally prone to, but it's an area that I think has uh, great merit going forward. And I think that the government is going to be spending massive amounts of money on green energy projects. Now it's a matter of finding the best one. So that's what I'm looking at. A couple of things before I let you go. First is we yeah. talked a lot about the dollar today. I'm assuming you're still bearish the dollar, even from back from when we talked about May 26 was that day that we looked at that Tuesday on the chart. What do you see mm-hmm. going forward in the dollar? I, I know that you're not in the business of saying how far low they can go, yeah, but can. just give me an idea of, of what you think to the downside. And also, what would make you not bearish the dollar anymore, whether it's a price or obviously a headline? I'm sure it could do that as well. Okay. So, you know, currencies are always a relative value, which make it so hard. You know, Alan Greenspan famously this. He said he doesn't understand currencies. He views it as a coin flip. Well, you know, I have a much different view. Uh, they're difficult because there are so many variables involved, but that's why I work so hard, because I, I want to understand what is the variable that comes to the fore that's going to drive the market. You know, most of the time, it's interest rate differential, but that's, that game shot right now. And so what's the difference between the euro and the dollar when it comes to interest rates? I would say very negligible. In fact, I can synthetically build a euro bond. I can create my own euro bond by buying X amount of Italian, X amount of Spanish, X amount of uh, Greek, uh, X amount, you know, and I can build, and I don't have to buy any German uh, bonds. So I can build a euro bond, which will be certainly competitive with the U.S. 10-year yield, and I'll be in euros. And if I think the euro is going higher, okay, it'll get me into euros, and it won't cost me anything on an interest rate. It's a, it's a risky bet, but I don't think the euro is as risky as it was once Schweibel made that move, and with what Lagarde wants to do. I think Europe, I think Europe would placate Germany with a stronger euro. By the way, um, now how high can it go? I've discussed the 125 area, and that's really you know what is that? An eight percent, nine percent move from here? Eight uh, percent move? It's not, it's not all that great. I've seen currencies. Look at the, look at the Brazilian real. You want to see currency moves this year, 60% or so, 70%. So there's, we're not talking about that. Number two, a weaker dollar would fit very well for the world because the world, this is not a trade issue. This is a finance issue. And because the, the world is borrowed in dollars, which is why I blocked back in March and April that the Fed needed to do certain things because so they needed to create vast amounts of dollar around the globe to prevent a massive rise in the dollar that some people were talking about because that would have created the deflationary spiral that they were trying to avoid. So what did they do? They opened up swap lines, which was the right thing to do. They cut interest rates. Here. They did everything they could to weaken the dollar. There was still some shortage of dollars because of the vast amount of global borrowing. 11 to 12 trillion by global corporations outside the U.S. that put a lot of uh, upside pressure on the dollar. Now I, you know, I talk about those areas, my pivot areas, as I see them right now. Again, technicals are very dynamic, 
But I, you know, I look at that 113.30 area in the euro, and uh, let's see, exact level in the dollar index. We're always going to watch the dollar index and trade the dollar index. Give you the same commensurate level because they run very well. Because so much, that's 96.43. We're trading 97.09 right now on the uh, dollar index. So, you know, we're close to them, but we've been here. And that's why I think they have credibility. So I'm very patient. Let's let's see how uh, it evolves. But I am, and it's a relative basis. I think Europe is looking better right now. And then we'll measure the amount of debt. Nobody is carrying more debt than the United States. Yeah, I know Italy does. But, that, but I'm talking about as, as a regional entity, and if I'm talking about a euro bond and the euro, I'm talking a regional entity. I'm not talking about the single involvement. And if there's going to be any type of fiscal uh, harmonization in Europe, that's bullish. Uh, so, and I think Europe has been underinvested, by the way. And I'm not the only one. You can read BlackRock, Blackstone, um, KKR, or Powell. They all have Europe funds that you're trying to put money to work in because they think that European assets are underpriced. So. Again, on a relative basis, you know, as, as they like to throw out, you know, because the, uh, the stupid media anchors like to have something, oh, the dirtiest shirt in the laundry. It's a relative basis trade. So somebody's up and somebody's down. Uh, I think the United States is in a very vulnerable position because of what the Fed has done. And the political situ situation here is a big negative and the huge amount of debt that we are taking on, both public and private. Is enormous and it's going to grow because listen, the Mnuchin's out right as we're talking, you know, talking about a possible another two trillion, two and a half trillion, and that's without a real infrastructure program. So uh, that's a, and the municipalities and the state governments, state regional municipal governments in the U.S. are going to get whacked from revenue shortfall. So there's not a whole lot for me to be. Uh, to be bullish about in the U.S. I don't care what the stock market is doing, to tell you the truth, outside of the trading vehicle. And, and that's, that's just the way that I see it. And the Fed is now taking on the role as the Minister of Social Justice by what Powell has talked about with the employment situation. And that was, you know, he said it at the, at the Fed press conference and then he said it in his testimony last week that the people who lost their jobs, it was through no fault of their own. That phrase, to me, is a dangerous, dangerous phrase for your central bank to make. Because if it's through no fault of their own, does the Fed then stay the course on aggressive monetary stimulus until all those people, uh, Blacks, Hispanics, or you know what, in the, in the world, they talk about the people who had just finally moved, and the Fed really prided themselves under monetary policies, it's crazy, that they were getting a toehold in the best jobs market for minorities in the United States in 40 plus years. So if we wait to get back to there after all of this, the Fed is gonna be very, very easy by their own hand. So my barometer becomes this. And it's interesting because Powell came up with the same number and I blogged about it probably six, seven weeks ago. So let's say in order to understand Fed policy, ask yourself this question. It's December, after, now we're after the presidential election. Unemployment in the United States is 9% and inflation is running 6%. 
Does the Fed raise interest rates? I mean, I, I, I would say absolutely not. They're not going to. Okay. I'm bearish to Donald. And you don't think they're going to raise interest rates, do you? No. No, no he chance. told you. Yeah. Getting back to you and your edge. I, I think a lot of the traders out there listening are probably saying, well, how do I develop my edge for myself like PAX? Walk us through how you got to the point of recognizing that it wasn't going to be a strategy, it was going to be you, and your process for developing your edge. Now, I don't want to give I don't want to give anybody the false uh, 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 a false indication that I don't have a, 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 a you know a trading process because I do. Um, I, on the trading floor, it was much more forgiving. You know, we had so many things that went into into trading that. That uh, I mean, I had I had I had my my method of trading on the floor, and I had to learn. Eventually, I had to learn how to um, translate that into or onto the screens. That took a while to sit and and uh, 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 work through. I had to learn how to manage my positions. I had to learn how to to uh, we, we I trade the opening range trade. You know, I, I am long above and I'm short below. I have, uh, I already, I already have my plan written out every morning. So when the price, when I, when price breaks out of the opening range, for for example, today the bottom of the opening range was was thirty thirty one thirty seven. Below the opening range, I know that once the market gets to thirty one twenty one, I'm going to be taking profit. Thirty one ten, I'll be taking more. Down to twenty uh, thirty seventy three, same thing. So I've got these preconceived prices on the downside and up on the upside. I know what I'll do when the market gets. I know what I'll do when the market gets there, and if I miss the trade, that's the important part. If I miss it, I'm okay with it because I know that I'll catch it. I'm not going to try to 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 initiate risk at a spot that I should not be trying to because I'm I'm going to wind up getting too chopped out. I'm going to wind up giving back too much money to the market that I really don't want to do. So. That's part of not doing anything. Now, on the other hand, you know, I, I so I don't want to give the false idea, the false notion that I don't have a a a, uh, a defined set of rules and set of guidelines that I trade. And I don't want to give the false notion that I don't use technicals and I don't use fundamentals because I do. I'm constantly reading, and at night when I sit down to do my homework, you know, I am pouring over charts and I am doing the work that I need to do to 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 come up with the best targets for the next day's trade. But none of that will matter. None of it will matter unless I wake up in the morning. And and frankly, I I say this all the time, unless I wake up in the morning and I make my bed. That's the first thing I do every day. It's important. And then I've got a routine. I've got habits that I go through every day so that I can check in with myself before the the open of the market. I've got, it's something, it's kind of corny, but it's just some, it's a little checklist that I've got in my, in my notebook. CCFF. Am I confident? Am I carefree? Am I fearless? Am I am I focused? If I am not confident, I don't need to be trading. Or maybe I need to cut size. And confidence means a lot of things. Maybe or carefree. You know, am I am I worried about my health or somebody else's health? Am I worried about um, something going on peripherally? Something going on in the world, right? Maybe I cut my size. Do I am I fearless? Now, for a long time, you know, I when I was starting back uh, the second phase of my career after I'm at Global Field and, and full time on the screens, 
I had to I had to 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 figure out how to manage my positions most effectively so as to to not try to take too much out of the market without taking a little bit of profit and also to 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 leave something on to take something to to take more profit out as the market extends and also to to leave a runaround so that I can build a position. So that go that all goes into you know my my fearless and my focus part. Because am I worried about making money? Do I have to pay my bills like I had to in the beginning, you know, through my trading like I had to at the beginning of the second phase of my career? Because if I do, then I'm going to be trading with fear. If I'm trading with fear, I'm losing money. If I'm worried about making money, I'm in trouble. I need to be confident. I need to be carefree. I need to be fearless. And I need to be focused. If I'm not, that's the first, first morning evaluation that I need to go through. Then I know whether do I trade my normal unit size or maybe do I cut my size in half? Where's the, and of course I take into account now where's the market, you know, technicals, where's the market, you know, yep. do I like this area, that kind of thing. And, you know, that goes also into it too. But I hear lots of traders, Anthony, talking about all, and it's important. I don't mean to minimize, you know, the, the technicals and the fundamentals and, you know, I don't mean to minimize that. But I really don't hear enough. I don't hear too many traders talking about the mindset and what we need to go through in order to control our emotions so that our emotions don't control us. So that, you know, I, 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 tra I trade the, I trade my plan. If I don't trade my plan, I'm just going to I'm going to be trading randomly. Again, yeah. it goes back to being CCFL. And I know it sounds corny, but, you know, for me, it works. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can listen to all of our episodes on FuturesRadioShow.com, iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher.